the last part in our series called Truth and Apply, how what you can know can impact how you can live. So it's important to talk about miracles. Important. You see on the internet videos of people like Benny Hinn that kind of just wave their hands and people say, oh, I was healed. I was touched by the blood of Christ and whatever. And uh, the difficult thing is like, we know that's, that's not real. A lot of that is all just hoaxes, right? Unfortunately, like even Benny Hinn got indicted like a month ago or something from just, you know, stealing from people and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so you look at that, you look at the abuse of that and you say, well, does God do any miracles? Does God heal anybody? We've had in history people that experience revival and there's different people that have, you know, um, faith healings and, and ceremonies where people come forward and they, they're touched and they say, it's a miracle. And so you look at that and you kind of get burned. You're like, well, does God still do miracles? Who knows? And you watch a video like this that talks about, well, why, if God does miracles, why is it the case that he doesn't heal amputees? And so hopefully you guys got to discuss that. And I went around a couple of different groups and basically just kind of like, you know, people responding with different things. But um, the question isn't really like, you know, is it possible for God to do that? The question is, why doesn't he do that? If God does heal people of cancer, which should be impossible, right? Why doesn't he heal people that have missing limbs? And if you look at the world today, especially in America, it doesn't seem like you see genuine healings and genuine miracles all the time. So what does that mean for us? And the reason why this is so important is because many, many people believe that a belief in miracles is irrational, right? You're kind of stupid, naive, foolish for believing that God can do the impossible. But being a Christian means that you believe in miracles because our faith is based in miracles, based on a miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, the, the word of God, the Bible that we have itself speaks all about miracles. So for those two reasons alone, Christians should believe that miracles are possible and we have to answer people when they ask about healing, when they ask about miracles. How can you believe in a God who writes all about like the blind being able to see and the lame being able to walk and the dead rising. How can you believe in a book full of fairy tales? And tonight, hopefully, we'll be able to talk a little bit about that. So atheists have this term they call God in the gaps or God of the gaps, I should say. God of the gaps, which means anytime there's no explanation, we just say God did it. So when you look at science, and science can't account for how the universe began. Don't worry, God did it. Or when you're saying, oh man, I thought I was gonna die because I had this crazy disease and then one day I didn't have the disease. God must have done it. They would say that is God of the gaps because just because there's not a scientific explanation doesn't mean that we can't ever find one. It just means that we haven't figured it out yet with the science that we have currently. And so what they would say is God of the gaps. An example of that would be back in the day, when people used to say, um, you know, the, the earth is the center of the universe, right? The center of the universe is the earth. And then Galileo found out like, ah, oh, it, it might not be the case. Or Copernicus, whoever it was. Figured out, I was like, man, it might not be the case that earth, the earth is not the center of the universe. 
And so they keep on pushing back. Well, I guess that's not godly gaps, but you get, you know what I'm saying? That at one point, they would say that Christians got it wrong about science. But that's not what the Bible says. It's just what some people that were Christians said about science. So, all that being said, the questions that we're going to be exploring tonight are questions like, what do we believe about miracles? Are they for today or are they only happened at some point in the past? What is the purpose of miracles? How come God heals some people but not all people? Should we expect miracles today or are they only for certain Christians, certain types of Christians, or in certain parts of the world? And what can we learn about God from miracles? So all these questions and more, but why don't we pray? Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we seek to explore the subject of miracles, that it's edifying, that we leave here encouraged and in awe and wonder of you, Lord. So fill us with your Holy Spirit to understand the things that you want us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first, we need to talk about what is a miracle? What is a miracle? Here's a definition by Dr. Norman Geisler. He says, a miracle is a divine intervention in the natural world that produces an event that would not have resulted from purely natural causes. So a miracle, once again, is a divine intervention in the natural world that produces an event that would not have resulted from purely natural causes. So it's like God inserting something inside of the system that we have from outside of the system. When God created the universe, he created out of nothing, ex nihilo, which means that he didn't have matter and just rearrange it. There was literally nothing, and he spoke it into existence. When uh, Jesus came into this world through the virgin birth, he was inserted from outside of the system. That's how you had the virgin birth. So this is not something that can be explained through natural means. Imagine in your mind's eye for a second that, like, you're going about your daily life and somehow, somewhere, someone started screaming loud enough that everybody in the entire universe can hear the scream from no matter where they are, but it would all be the same volume. And it wasn't like ear piercing. It was like almost like a low hum, but you could definitely tell, like, somebody's screaming outside. You couldn't tell, like, maybe a baby, maybe a, a grown man. Can't really discern, but you know that somebody's screaming. It just started out of nowhere. Now, if people are, like, people would be scrambling to figure out what in the world is happening. Like, where did the scream come from? You stand outside, and you look around, and you're, like, trying to find the person. They send people into outer space trying to, like, figure out where the sound is coming from, right? Like, it would drive everybody nuts. Right now, I have something called floaters in my eye, which are, like, anyone ha ever have them? like things that just like appear in front of your vision and it's just like this like string of like dust or dirt or just a little like a bug or something. It just like floats around just like whenever you're looking around. Like it just annoys you to death. But they say over time you're going to get used to it and you're not going to think about it anymore, which just scares me. Like it doesn't go away. I went to the eye doctor a million times like, like really? And it was like it might fall to the bottom of your eye and you might not see it anymore, but most likely you're just going to, your brain's going to reconfigure so that you don't, necessarily notice it anymore, but it's always going to be there. So what if the scream was like that, right? It just became background noise, and after a while, you just kind of ignored it. People would usually, like, want to find an explanation to drive them nuts. But let's say that the scream had always happened since the beginning of time, and that no one was there to witness the origin of the scream. In that case, I think people would say that it's just the background noise of the universe, 
right? There is no explanation. It's just always been there. And people probably wouldn't even notice it because they would not know what it's like to not have someone screaming faintly in the background. Kind of a ridiculous example, but I think it illustrates something. A lot of the things that we observe on a regular basis, really, if you think about it, are miraculous. But people don't question it because it happens on a regular basis. It's repeatable, it's measurable, and these are called natural laws. But the Bible actually says that natural laws are repeated instances of God's sustaining power. That the things that we observe through science aren't just mere brute facts, but God actually made them the way that they are. The reason why the earth is in the position that it is, the reason why we have days and the earth rotates at a very like uh, consistent manner over uh, thousands and thousands or millions, depending on what you believe, years, many, many years. The fact that that happens is a result of God's sustaining power. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says, that Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his son, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high. It also says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him, him being Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So it says that all things, visible and invisible, are actually created by God and sustained by his power. By his word, he sustained all things. And if you asked uh, Dr. Evan Margareta after the study today about the strong nuclear force, scientists can't explain why it is that atoms are sticking together. What's holding them together? Why don't they just fly off into outer space or whatever? And a lot of people posit the fact that God himself is sustaining those atoms together. And this is what the Bible is teaching. So if you think about it, the natural things that happen on a regular basis, the fact that we have days, the fact that we have seasons, the, everything about our world and our universe should be wondrous and miraculous and leave us in awe, but it doesn't because it always happens. Now the, the poet, I think he's a poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, if he's not, correct me afterwards, said this, really interesting. He said, if spring came but once in a century instead of once a year or burst forth with the sound of an earthquake and not in silence, what wonder and expectations there would be in all hearts to behold the miraculous change. Just envision that scenario. Imagine that spring only came once a century. The second it came, everybody would be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Right, but because it happens once a year, everyone anticipates and like you might enjoy spring, but you don't think it's that amazing. Now the Bible shows us that these amazing natural laws of this world are established by God. In Psalm chapter 147, verses 15 through 18, it says this. God sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes the wind, his wind to blow, and the waters flow. The entire chapter is illustrating how the seasons themselves are guided by God's word. Dr. Vern Poitras says it this way. By speaking, he establishes the regularities that we see in the world. So all these laws, all these scientific um, observations that we make 
are established by God and by his word. And as we have these natural laws, get this, these regularities themselves remind us of God's faithfulness. So the fact that science can consistently measure the same data is a result of God's faithfulness. Now you might just say, well, no, that's just the way that the world is. But realize, no, that's saying something. The fact that the world, the fact that tomorrow will happen, the fact that we're gonna have another 24 hour period and it's not gonna have like an extra day just added on to the year randomly and not like a leap year. The fact that that happens on a regular basis speaks of God's faithfulness. This is why, I'll prove it to you. This is why God says in Genesis chapter eight, verse 22 to Moses, while the earth remains, he makes a promise. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So remember, he makes the rainbow, and he says, I'm not going to flood the earth again. And he, had, he says, you're always going to have a season, Noah, in this world. It's my promise to you. Now you look in there, and you're just like, of course you're going like, to have seasons. That's what it means to be on earth, right? But what God is saying here is he established that so that when you see the seasons, you're reminded that God himself has established those seasons and that he is faithful. That's why Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 talks about the seasons, that God makes everything beautiful in its, in its time. It's an illustration. Everything in creation is an illustration about God and his faithfulness, his goodness, his wonder, his mercy, and his grace. That's why the Bible can say, the heavens themselves declare of the glory of God. And so when you look at the universe, you can say, wow, this actually tells me a little bit about what my God is like. So really interesting. Now, in contrast to natural laws, miracles don't happen very often. Otherwise, they wouldn't be miracles. If your body healed itself once, right, just like you were just battle damaged, you were dying, you need to go to the hospital, it just like miraculously healed itself, it would be a miracle, right? Like miraculously here, that's redundant. If it just healed itself, it'd be a miracle. But if it could heal itself on a regular basis, when you have a cold, when you have a scratch on your arm or a bruise, like that's just science. That just happens, right? That's part of natural law and that's part of biology. And this is the way that God created us, right? So to be a miracle, it can't happen very often. Now, a lot of what happens in today's world with atheists is they have an anti-supernatural bias. So natural being like the regular world, right? Supernatural being beyond what can be observed by science. A lot of people have an anti-supernatural bias. They're not open to the fact that God can do miracles. And they say, well, like, I don't believe that God can do a miracle because I've never observed it before because science hasn't recorded any amputee of being healed or whatever. But realize that is a bias against what God can or can't do. If you can believe in the very first miracle that God created the heavens and the earth, if you can believe that, the resurrection's not that hard right? If you can believe that God creates something out of nothing, obviously he can do stuff with already created material. He can do things with you. He can do things with me. He can do things in your life. He can change you. He can, he can heal you. He can do all kinds of things. So when the person who's the anti-supernaturalist says God can't do X, what they're doing is they're saying that he can't because I don't believe he can. Now, for them to say that, they would have to first disprove the first miracle. 
and say that it happened all by itself, no explanation. So we'll get to that in a second, the whole arm thing or amputee thing. But really quickly, what a miracle is not. I established what a miracle is. Let me tell you what it is not. A miracle is not naturally explainable. And this is the problem with all of us today. We have exaggerations all the time, right? It's a miracle. I got a prom date, right? It's like, maybe for you it is a miracle, but probably not. Probably there's an explanation. You put on the right cologne or maybe you said the right thing. It probably is not a miracle. Now, I remember when I got my very first car. It was 1983, Porsche 944. You're like, whoa, it's a Porsche. Well, that's the whole point. It's 1983, and it was a Porsche 944. It's a four-cylinder. So, like, it was cool for being 17 years old and having a Porsche, but it had all kinds of problems, and I eventually had to sell it. But I remember, like, the gas gauge magically, like, I was, like, running on empty, and then it just went back to half. It was something like that. It was just like, I just gained gas. And I was like, it's a miracle. God has provided the gas that I needed so I can go an extra like 10 miles. More likely, my gas gauge was just broken. It just like fixed itself and it just jumped back to like where it was supposed to be. Okay, so when we use those figures of speech, we got to be careful because what we think might be a miracle might not actually be a miracle. It might be explainable by science or just other natural causes. So miracle is not naturally explainable. It's also not arbitrary. Arbitrary meaning that it has to um, convey a message. It doesn't just happen for absolutely no reason. And there are like false gospels there out there that kind of just say like, well, Jesus, when he was a little boy, zapped a little cricket and like it exploded, died. Or like there's a child that like didn't want to do, do what he wanted to do when Jesus was a child. So then he just shriveled up that child by the word of his power or whatever. It's just like, it makes no sense, right? Like, it, there's no rhyme or reason. Jesus just doesn't do things like that for no reason. And so this could kind of, like, help you um, weed out some of the things that people say are miraculous. Like, when people talk about holy laughter, and it's like, I haven't laughed in 15 years, and today I laughed because of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. It's like, maybe it's not. It might not be. Or when people are convulsing and they fall on the floor and just like they have the soul sleep or not slow sleep, whatever they call, like what, what happens? With, what do you call that? Slaying in the spirit. Evan knows. My uh, local Pentecostal, Evan Margareta. <laughs> so when people slay you in the spirit, hey, listen, I'm just saying like people believe that. I just feel like it's arbitrary. Why would God do that? It's just like really? Like there's no point to doing that, right? So for it to be a miracle, it should be conveying a message. In summary, if natural laws convey a message about God, then miracles convey a special message from God. Natural laws tell us about God, and miracles are a message from God, that he wants to say something special, and in particular, to be able to suspend the natural laws and do something different. So now this brings us to not what is a miracle, but what is the purpose of miracles? The purpose of miracles. So why do we have, uh, why do we have miracles in the first place? Well, I'll answer that question with another question. If God wanted to send us a message, how would we know it is God speaking? If God wanted to convey a message to you and he's just like, all right, I want 
Nick to know that I really, really love him. So I'm going to write him a letter. And he gets, Nick gets a letter in the mail, and he opens it up, and he says, hey, Nick, just want to let you know I love you. Signed, God. Nick would be like, I probably have some weird stalker writing me letters <laughs> saying that they're God, right? Like, you would think it's a natural explanation because it's nothing miraculous. But if there's a miracle behind it, right, like a letter falls from the sky and it's flaming and it's just like, it doesn't, it's not burned, but it's just like, kind of like the burning bush, right? It's like, it's on fire, but it is not burned. Then you would be like, this is probably a legit message from God because it's miraculous. So in order for God to confirm his message, a special message, he would have to do something that only he could do. This is why prophets would not only tell you what's going to happen, uh, what God is saying, but he would tell you what's going to happen in the future. Being a prophet was not just foretelling the future, but pastoral says all the time. It's what? It's foretelling the word of God. So in order to confirm what is being said from God, that you may know that it is God speaking, here's what's going to happen in the future. That's how prophets spoke. So why would that happen? That's because only God knows the future. So in other words, miracles confirm a special message from God because only God can do miracles. Only he can do the miraculous. Not to say that the enemy can't do some form of magic or sorcery or some kind of copy, but even, remember, Pharaoh's magicians couldn't do certain miracles. Like, I think it was the fly one or whatever. Like, there were certain things that they could do, like replicate the snake or, or turn the water into blood, but then suddenly, like, there were flies everywhere. Like, we can't do that. Like, this is definitely of God because there's flies, you know? So there are certain limits to what Satan himself can do. He can't the future. He can't read your mind. There are certain things he can't do, and there are certain things that only God can do. Listen to what Eric Metaxas says on this point. He says, the Greek word for miracle is simaios. I probably pronounced that terribly, but I'm not Greek, so I'm sorry. It says, which means sign. Miracles are signs, and like all signs, they are never about themselves. They're about whatever they are pointing toward. Miracles point to something beyond themselves, but to what? To God himself. And that's the point of miracles to point us beyond our world to another world. Pastor Tim Keller has a great quote about how miracles are not the suspension of the natural order. It's not just that God presses the pause button on scientific law and say like, hey, listen, I want to send you a special message. But it's the restoration of the natural order. Pointing to the future when God will restore the entire world. It's, it's his message saying, hey, the kingdom of God is coming. And this is why he's come to heal the blind, to, to help the, the lame and, and heal the deaf, to do those things that are going to be a byproduct of the coming kingdom of God. So, proof text for this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. John chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So people know that when there are signs, wonders, miracles, that God himself wants to say something. Now, many of you on a very practical level will meet people that say to you that I don't believe that we can ever figure out whether or not God exists. Or they'll say, I don't think we can believe, or I don't think we can figure out who God is. 
Like you believe in Gandhi, but well, no one believes that Gandhi's God, sorry. You believe in Allah, you believe in another God, I can't think off the top of my head. You think in different gods, we don't know which one is the right God. Like maybe you have the right God, we'll never know. And when people ask you that, you have to ask yourself like, how would you respond, right? So when someone says to you, I don't think anyone can ever know whether or not God exists. I don't think we can ever figure out who God is. You know what I say? I would say, you know what? You're right. If God himself did not speak to us. If it's all about us trying to like look at the heavens and try to figure out by science and like whatever, like who God is, the best we can do is like God probably exists. He probably created all of this. But we would not know who God is. But if somewhere in history, God decided to do something miraculous, then we would have to believe that God exists, right? Like I would say to people often, okay, so you believe that you can't ever believe, you, you can never figure out whether or not God is real, right? Let's see, yes. What if God just opened up the heavens right now and said, hey, I'm God, here I am. You would say like, that's, that's proof enough that God exists, right? And they'd be like, yeah. So how do you know that God didn't do something like that 2,000 years ago? Through Jesus, when he resurrected from the dead. Well, that definitely didn't happen, right? That's what they say. So if that happened, if it's possible that Jesus Christ three days later rose from the dead, even though he definitely died on a cross, then yes, that is a miracle. And yes, Jesus is God. This is what the Bible hangs upon is saying like, this is our hope as Christians to know that we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been raised from the dead just as Jesus is raised from the dead. So the Bible gives us the very miracle as proof that Jesus is from God and he is God. So we can talk about that resurrection miracle. Actually, we'll talk about it now. Okay. I'll give you the, the, the quick digest, brief version of a defense of the resurrection. And then we'll talk the rest about miracles. Um, so there are a couple facts that New Testament scholars, Christian and non-Christian, all agree upon to say that Jesus definitely, um, well, they wouldn't come with the conclusion, but they have different facts that we as Christians would say, like, probably the most logical conclusion is that Jesus rose from the dead. So the first one is that Jesus died on a cross, right? Like, very few people actually dispute that Jesus died on a cross. Everyone knows that Romans were really good at killing people. And even if Jesus is on the cross and he, like, somehow escaped death by some miracle, right? That would be a miracle. He escaped from the cross. Imagine him going up to his, like, his followers and be like, hey guys, I rose from the dead. <laughs> and he's just like dying. Like people, if he barely escaped death, no one would believe that he resurrected, right? Roman's really good at killing people. So most likely he actually died and he was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, who is a Pharisee. He was a guy who was uh, part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So looking at somebody like that, you're like, here's a rich guy. Why would he, one of the people that tried to kill Jesus, try to save Jesus and bury him in his tomb? Most likely, he was actually buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He took the body, buried him in the tomb, and it was sealed by a very heavy rock and guarded by Roman soldiers, okay? The next fact is that the tomb was found empty by a bunch of women followers. Now that is not disputed because women were probably not an invention. It was a very unlikely thing for people to just insert women into the story because back in those days, women, unfortunately, their testimony wasn't even heard in court. 
So the fact that they would invent women followers to find the tomb empty seems like weird. Secondly, we, we talked about like Romans were good at what they did. And if the Roman seal was broken on that rock, that means that the Roman soldiers would all die. So they were making sure that the tomb was not found empty. They were standing guard. But we know as Christians, as believers, that the tomb, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was found empty by a bunch of these Roman followers. So that being the case, you have the next fact, which is the appearances of Jesus after he died. So people said that they saw Jesus after he died. So he died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb was found empty by a bunch of women followers. And then people said that they saw Jesus after he died. What do you do with those facts? Well, I think the most logical thing is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now people said, what if people stole the body of Jesus? Well, if people stole the body of Jesus, then why would they... Why would all the disciples except for John die for Jesus? People may die for something that they hope is true, like Muslims, like not all Muslims, but jihadists, people that are terrorists and they, they die, you know, 9-11 and they crash into the World Trade Center. People die for what they hope they know is true, but no one dies for something they know is false. And this is what the disciples would have to do because if they stole the body, they would know that Jesus for sure was dead and they made up this theory that he was really alive and that he resurrected. So people say, well, what if people hallucinated and saw Jesus? But the problem is that the Bible records and people, historians have recorded that over 500 people said that they saw Jesus after he died. Now, hallucinations don't happen widespread over groups of people. If you're tripping out on acid, we don't all see the same thing. That'd be like, I guess cool if you do that, which is not cool. But people don't do that. 500 people don't all see the same thing. And... If people said that they like saw a ghost, right? You saw a hallucination. A hallucination doesn't convince you that the person is alive. It convinces you, it convinces you that they're really dead. If you and I saw a ghost of Jesus after he died and we're like disciples, you'd be like, whoa, I saw Jesus' ghost. You wouldn't say that I saw Jesus and he's really alive. So all these reasons kind of just like you look at it and you're like, okay, what is the explanation other than Jesus rose from the dead? What motivation would they have for stealing the body? And how is it in the same city where people were crucifying Jesus that all of a sudden Christianity exploded in the same time period in the same city and people started evangelizing willing to die for Jesus? The only logical explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Okay, moving on. That resurrection miracle conveys a message that Jesus is actually God. Let's get on to the question that we talked about in the very beginning of the message, which is, why doesn't God heal amputees? You're an intelligent person. You notice how you have to come up with some kind of rationalization to explain why God didn't do this. So here's the thing. And you might want to write this down. God's will is not to convince the world that he exists. It's to call people to repentance and worship him. The problem with this analogy, the problem with this is that the person assumes that God's goal is to convince people that he exists. And so surely God could heal a person's limb and regrow it and then everyone will believe that God exists. Listen, that is not God's goal to just, because if, if that was his goal, all he'd have to do is once again, like appear in the sky and be like, hey, by the way, I'm here, Right? That's not his goal. Because listen to this. By God exposing, you know, his glory and showing himself to all of the world, to a sinful world, would actually mean they are now more guilty 
and they are actually now more responsible for the glory that they know. With more knowledge that you have of God, the more you're responsible. So if people actually want to turn away from God and do their own thing, they'll actually be more guilty on the day of judgment. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So miracles don't guarantee people will commit themselves to him. In the Bible, there are examples of this. Pharaoh himself saw the signs, right? He saw the ten plagues, and yet he was not willing to let the people go. Instead, the Bible says, especially in Romans, that Pharaoh continually, the more miracles he saw, hardened his heart. Interestingly enough, remember Moses? Moses was like terrified of doing this mission. Moses was like, oh man, God got the wrong guy for the job. I'm going to die. I don't know how I'm going to ask Pharaoh for the, the people to leave, whatever. And then eventually, he gets to this place in his life where he's standing in front of the Red Sea and the people are like, oh no, we're going to die. Moses, why have you delivered us to die by the hands of Pharaoh? And Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to stand still. How in the world did Moses get that bold? I believe that the miracles did two things. As Moses saw the miracles, his faith increased. And as Pharaoh saw the, the miracles, his heart hardened. And this is what miracles do. For us as believers, we can be so encouraged. When you see something miraculous, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. God is real. But for the person who doesn't believe in God, it could actually make him more guilty of judgment. So it's not to convince the world that he exists. Demons in hell believe that he exists, remember? But to, to call people to repentance and to worship him. Israel saw the signs. And yet how many times did they harden their hearts? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 says, did God ever try to go out and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors, according to all the Lord your did for you and the Egypt before your eyes? So what God is saying is like, listen, I did so much for you. How is it that you're still so stubborn? You're so stiff-necked. We see a wonder today and tomorrow we just like, does God even love me anymore? You know, like... Our heart constantly condemns us, and that's why it's so encouraging to read that scripture, right, in 1 John, that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. We need to remember what God has done, remember his works. Now, something really interesting, all of you guys know the story, right, when Jesus heals Lazarus and raises him from the dead. The Bible actually records, I forget where, but it's in there, trust me, you can ask me later, I'll look it up. The Bible actually records that Pharisees, their hearts were so hardened that they actually plotted to kill Lazarus so they wouldn't have evidence that Jesus is God. Like, how stubborn do you have to be that you're like, oh man, people are believing in Jesus. And he, why did he have to heal Lazarus? Okay, so let's kill him so that people still believe that he's dead. Like, like the amount of ignorance that you have to have, right? But this is what... What happens when people's hearts are hardened? People don't want to follow God. So the whole answer to the whole amputee thing is God's goal is not to convince the world that he exists. It's to call people to repentance and to worship him. Now, this leads us to the fact that many people are not open to believing in God. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 real quick. 
I want you to see something. This is such an important point because so many people are always constantly praying for miracles and I think we're praying the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. I'll show you in a second. Go to Matthew chapter 12 and we're going to read verse 38 through 42. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, and answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Remember, sign like miracles. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three, nights of three, three days and three nights of the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are like, if you really are from God, show us a sign. And Jesus is saying like, listen, if you read the Bible, you would know like, I'm God. You would know. All it took for the people of Nineveh is one person, the prophet Jonah, to come up in like three days and like God's going to judge the earth or whatever it was, whatever the period of time was. God is going to judge the earth unless you repent. And everybody repented. And he says, I'm greater than Jonah. And people came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom and I'm greater than Solomon. If you only were believing what was already given to you you would know that I'm God, but you're not willing. That's what Jesus is saying. How, how much proof do we need to believe Jesus is God? Is it possible that we have everything we need in the Bible and it's our job to figure that out, to do our research, to do our homework? How much more does God have to do than what he already did on the cross to prove to you and I that he exists, that he loves you? So here's, here's our next point. Miracles should not be a prerequisite of our faith. They should be an exercise of our faith. Miracles should not be a pre prerequisite of our faith. It should be an exercise of our faith. So what I mean by this is, I mean, how many of us want God to confirm his love and his existence to us by way of miracles? We pray things like, Lord, I just pray that you like like, I used to pray when I was your age, like, Lord, I want you to, like, flicker the lights on and off to show that you're, like, real, you know? Like, in that moment, like, you're in that worship setting, you're like, Lord, just do something miraculous to show that you're really here, you know? But we should already believe that because we know, like, from creation, from the word of God, we should know that God already exists. So now miracles are an exercise of our faith because we know that God exists. Now we ask God to move the mountain, so maybe when we're praying for a miracle, what we're really doing is we want God to confirm he's real. And what we should be doing is praying for a miracle simply because it's in accordance with his will and because he wants to do the miracle. Now, in the Bible, Jesus conveyed messages through his miracles. Remember, it's not arbitrary. He didn't just show up and do things and zap people, but he did things for a purpose. So when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was conveying a message. What was that message? It was the very first miracle, by the way. 
it was a message because, okay, remember the setting, they're at a wedding and Jesus' mom is like, they ran out of wine, what are we going to do? And so Jesus, what he does is he turns the water into wine to symbolize that he has come to bring joy into our world. Wine was a, a symbol of abundance, of fulfillment, and of joy. And to not have wine was actually almost like um, a symbol of God's judgment upon the earth. So what Jesus is saying is, I've come that you might have life in that more abundantly. That's what Jesus' message was. And that God cares about every little matter, whether big or small, in our world. And so Jesus also fed the 5,000. And by doing that, he was conveying a message. Elisha, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4, fed, uh, sorry, fed 100 people. And that was a miracle. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, what he's saying is, I'm greater than Elisha. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, showing that he had power over death itself. He healed a blind man in John chapter 9. And people said, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said this, neither this man nor his parents' sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In Mark chapter 2, remember uh, Pastor Tom Crenshaw taught on this passage a long time ago, and he called it a met miracle. Remember the guy was laid, you know, they opened up the roof and put her, their friend down through the roof so that he could be healed of his lameness. He couldn't walk, and he was lame as a person. And uh, so people are looking at him, and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven, right? And they're like, who does this guy think he is saying that he could forgive sins? And Jesus says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk. And he says this, that you may know that the son of man has the power to forgive sins, rise, take up your mat and walk. So what he was saying is, it's really easy to say, hey man, your sins are forgiven because you can't see that, right? But he was saying that you may know that he has the power to forgive sins. Now I'm going to show you the demonstration by the way of miracle. So he was confirming the message that he has the power to forgive sins. But I will say, even though it's easier to hear, it's harder to believe sometimes that you have your sins forgiven. And that's why we need to remember the works of God in our life. Okay, so in conclusion, what do miracles teach us about God? What are our takeaways from everything that we've learned today? Where is the application? Number one, miracles show us that nothing is too hard for God. This could be an entire message in and of itself. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said to the disciples, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. When we pray, could it be that our prayers are too small because we have forgotten how big our God is? Simple concept, but no matter what you're struggling with in this life, no matter what area of your heart is hurting, maybe you're thinking about what we talked about last week, unforgiveness, bitterness, and you're thinking, God can't help me forgive this person. And you're forgetting that nothing is impossible for God. He created the universe by the word of his mouth. And all you need is God's word to penetrate your heart. All you need is God's word 
to penetrate your heart so that you can be made new. He can take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Maybe there is a person in your life that's sick or hurting, and there's nothing impossible for God. But that also means that if he does not do according to your will, that we have to understand that it doesn't have to rock our faith or affect us because we know that God has reasons for what it is that he does. Here's the second thing it teaches us. The Bible teaches us that God uses average people to do his work. Turn over to James chapter 5. This is our concluding passage. James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Sorry, sins. I said sims, like the sims. (laughs) If he has played the sims, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, listen to verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What he's saying here is, listen, Elijah was a normal dude. And, like, when you look at the Bible, there are different, like, ways to apply the Bible, you know? Like, I'm not saying, like, there's different ways to interpret the Bible. But, like, when you look at the Bible, you know, like, you're not David. Jesus is the true David, right? And, like, we're, like, the armies of Israel that are hiding and cowering from Goliath. But in a sense, David was a real person, right? Like, this is a real person in history, and God used him. Likewise, James chapter 5 says, Elijah, okay, typically... He was symbolic of John the Baptist and Jesus is the greater Elijah, right? But he was a real man in history and God used him to do his miraculous works. So how do you know that your prayers won't be heard by God either? How do you know that God doesn't want to use you to heal people? So does not hear it that the prayer of faith will save the sick? Now that maybe and possibly, like it says it will. And the question is, will God give you that prayer? Will he impart to you that prayer so you can save and heal the sick? So, Jesus said to his disciples before he left that greater works will you do on earth because he sends his Holy Spirit with us. Now, when he says greater works, he's not saying like greater miracles, like you're going to be able to actually move the mountain or whatever. What he's saying is because all of you have the Holy Spirit, now you can do all the things that he was doing. Realize that if we were all, like, if we had Jesus today in a physical form, like, he was a human being, like, he would probably never get to meet you because there's just too many people in the world, 7 billion people in the world, right? You would never actually be able to spend time with Jesus. But because he sends his Holy Spirit, all of us can meet with Jesus, and all of us can be used by Jesus to bless other people. So if Jesus himself said, greater works will you do because I sent my Holy Spirit, how many of us are not using that power? How many of us are just not willing to to actually pray? So here's your application. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? 
Today, here's your exhortation. I would ask that you start to pray bold prayers. Here's your application. Everyone look up here. Start to pray bold prayers. We know miracles are possible. I, and here's the thing. Like when you're praying for someone who's sick, you're always hesitant, right? You're like, oh, I don't want to pray like uh, heal this person and then it not happen, right? So I'm not saying like, like command Jesus. I'm not saying to do stuff like that. What I am saying though is be open to what the Holy Spirit lays on your heart because you never know if God wants to do the miraculous. So like, Lord, do you want this person to be healed? Lord, what, what is it that you want from me? Lord, do you want this person to come to know you? And start to pray those things and see what the Lord does. That's what I'm asking. That's what I'm hoping for and that's what I'm praying. So let's pray together and close.